my name is Justin McClune, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to talk about something that we've never talked about before. Cinematographers. Uh, we talked about Ernest Dickerson. That's true. And today, we're going to be talking about James Wong Howe and Christopher Doyle. Now, you probably know Chris Doyle, as his friends like to call him. He's the guy who did all of Wong Kar Wai's famous films. But James Wong Howe may be a name that you are not that familiar with. In the sense that he worked on a lot of films, because he got there right on the ground floor of the industry, but not a lot of them are classics. And we'll be talking about Sweet Smell Success in his case, and for Christopher Doyle, Lady in the Water. But before we talk about them, Will, what do you think of when you think of cinematographer? Like, what is their role on a motion picture? Well, we definitely have an auteur bias on this podcast, I think it's fair to say. I think one of the things that I think is interesting about movies is that I value movies primarily as the work of one creator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most of my favorite movies are sort of auteur type works. And yet you take a classic example like Citizen Kane, even though it's so obviously an Orson Welles movie, you can clearly decipher the contributions of Greg Tolan, the cinematographer, or Herman Mankiewicz, the co-writer, or Robert Wise, the editor. And there, there's a paradox there, and there's a tension there that makes film interesting. I think that when we talk about auteurs, it's just so much easier because mm-hmm. you can speak about the vision of one person, mm-hmm. and that when you start kind of dismantling it and talking about why this is important, or that is important. That's where it gets a little bit more complicated. But I agree with you. I think that movies are made up by so many people. And that's why when I direct films, I feel uncomfortable putting like a Justin DeClue film because it would be a lie to say that all of this is mine. Like it's not my film. It's everybody who made it film. But then there's an example of somebody like, you know, talk about cinematographer, director, collaborations. My go-to example is often somebody like Woody Allen, the bad man. He's worked with over 50 movies, whoever movies he, many movies he's made. He's worked with a number of the most famous cinematographers, and their contributions are often clearly discernible in his movies. You can see how Gordon Willis in something like Annie Hall brings that Godfather Rembrandt look to mm-hmm. it. You can see how Sven Nickvist brings his more Bergman-esque look. You, in the guy he's working with now on Cafe Society, yeah, Vittorio Storero, you know he brings a very ripe and lush color sense and yet at the same time they all look like woody allen movies Mm -hmm. because woody allen specifically doesn't shoot in a fancy style Mm -hmm. so they are i don't want to say trapped but limited by the story that he's telling and also he has a sensibility he likes warm colors he Mm -hmm. likes autumnal colors uh golds and reds and browns and beiges and i think this example with woody allen shows why we don't talk about cinematographers as the author of the film. Even though, you know, Orson Welles famously gave Greg Toland credit on the same card in the Citizen Kane credits as him out of modesty. Cinematographers contribute simply one aspect of the film's overall design, and often they're at the service of articulating someone else's ideas. Mm -hmm. And when cinematographers venture out into directing on their own, the results are often disastrous, like Wally Pfister or Christopher Doyle, mm-hmm. to cite recent examples. Where, I mean, I don't want to paint a brush on all cinematographers, but they often don't have a sense of how to tell a story in a compelling way. Or they even yeah. step back while, by, like Wally Pfister and make an ugly-looking film yeah. that has no story. And they might not have great ideas of their own. They're, they're often at the service of someone else's ideas, but are able to articulate them beautifully. And cinematographers do multiple things, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, they are there to kind of articulate the ideas of the director, but they are also there as a technical person who needs to know how to execute these Mm -hmm. ideas, where a lot of cinematographers will often be commended by the people that they work with because they're able to bring to life these ideas the director asks from them in beautiful ways, and most importantly, being able to do it quickly. Mm -hmm. Because that is the one thing that like, you often hear directors interviewed go, oh yeah, this person was able to work really fast. I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast before, but cinema is a time-sensitive artistic endeavor Mm -hmm. where the people making it need to work quickly to get it done, no matter what it is, whether it be an Ed Wood picture or like a Michael Bay film. And that the cinematographer is that link in getting it done fast. Because Mm -hmm. the director says, all right, I want this done. 
all the other departments are running around, but it really comes down to the cinematographer of being able to set it up and being able to go, all right, let's roll. So James Wong Howe, in all the interviews that I've read about him, has always talked in that context, like, I'm the guy who can do it with nothing. And that's very important because James Wong Howe started in the industry right from the get-go. He worked with pretty much everybody famous from shorts right up to features. But the thing about James Wong Howe is he unfortunately was a studio man. He just went where he was sent. So the kind of pictures that he worked on were not defined by him. He could just make them as good looking as he was asked to make them look. Like looking at the list, he worked with people like Raul Walsh on Pursued, uh, Samuel Fuller on Baron Arizona, Fritz Lang on Hangman Also Die, Todd Browning on Mark of the Vampire, Howard Hawks on Air Force, all famous directors. And while some of those films, people really like them, none of them are considered classics. Well, some of them are considered classics. Baron of Arizona is kind of a classic. They're minor classics. They're minor yeah. classics. It's, yeah. He did Body and Soul. He did HUD. He did Yankee Doodle Dandy. The Thin Man. Yeah. Seconds. But he does have one film that is his unquestioned, I think, masterwork. And that is Sweet Smell of Success. Mm-hmm. Sweet Smell of Success was released in 1957. It tells the story of a Walter Winchell-like gossip columnist in New York played by Burt Lancaster and the press agent who is out there night after night scrounging, trying to find a bit of gossip for him to make his living, played by Tony Curtis. This movie is directed by one Alexander McKendrick and McKendrick directed a number of movies, but this is kind of the only one that's endured. It's hard to tell how much, frankly, McKendrick is responsible for the movie and how much the much more celebrated writer, Mm -hmm. Clifford Odets, you know, famous for his uh, uh, socially conscious left wing theater works, as well as the cinematographer, James Wong Howe, how much they're responsible for it. Because when people talk about the film, they often contextualize it in the visuals that Wong Hao brings and the acidic writing mm-hmm. that Odette brings to the table. Because this is a film that's all about the way people talk. And the fact that James Wong Hao brought this noirish kind of defined lighting style to it really makes it pop. There's a perfect symbiosis between his photography and the very kind of hard-boiled dialogue that Clifford Odette's writes. Both of them are very, very sharp and harsh and... Heightened? Heightened. You know, at one point, Tony Curtis says, I love this dirty town. And indeed, the town looks very dirty. Like, at night, New York in this movie looks like an ink pit. It's lighted by, you know, these these street lamps and these car lights and uh, the reflections of these lights on the wet roads. But you never get... You don't get a great sense of the surrounding space. While it does have that kind of claustrophobic feel, it's also right on the cusp of the kind of Hollywood guerrilla style filmmaking Mm -hmm. that would become the norm in the sense that it is shot on like New York streets with these Hollywood stars moving around these large spaces. I was actually reminded a little bit of Raoul Coutard's photography for Breathless three years later in the sense that both these films are so busy. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Sweet Smell of Success and its night scenes is shot in deep focus cinematography in these very cramped restaurants and nightclubs where there's so much stuff happening in every plane of the frame and all of it's in focus. The city feels like it's in this sort of chaos Mm -hmm. in a similar way to how in Breathless the city feels alive. Yeah. I would also say that something that Wong Hao brings to this film is that while it does have that busy everything going on at once feel, he also inserts these moments of expressionist and Chia Roscuro lighting with shadows where they'll cut to a close-up of a woman talking and her eyes will be kind of highlighted by blinds. But then in the next shot, it'll cut to a wide and all of that will be gone. And it's those points of accent that I think make the movie as special as it is as well. Do you think I would be wrong to see any Citizen Kane influence on this? Because I know that James Wong Howe actually used deep focus photography before Greg Tolan Yeah, did. 10 years before. A movie called Transatlantic in 1931. Uh, but this movie also has a lot of low, dramatic low angles and a lot of visible ceilings. I always think of, and I don't remember which director said this, 
But he talked about like the new age of Hollywood and the way that they were using cameras and stylistic techniques. And he went, oh, we did that all back in the day when we started cinema. They just figured out a way to focus it. And I feel that I don't know if it's inspired by Citizen Kane because I would like to believe that Greg Toland was inspired by James Wong Howe. But I guess the other major influence on this film, the, the stated influence on the visual style was the New York tabloid photography of Ouija, mm-hmm. you know, the famous uh, tabloid photojournalist. Uh, and like Ouija's photography, this movie has a very high contrast, gritty street level feel, very, very graphically intense. The movie also doesn't have any of the kind of like flatness that we normally associate with films from black and white films from the late 1950s. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of depth to the frame. The lighting is very dramatic, whereas a lot of the sort of later film noir movies, frankly, look a little more like television. Probably because those films would be forced into a lower budget because mm-hmm. you're getting into poverty row time. Yeah. Well, this one does have that big budget, so it can't have that crispness and the depth to the frame that you don't usually associate with more lower budget film noir. With James Wong Howe, it's hard for me to discern a a personality in his photography the way that you can with Vittorio Storaro or Vilmo Sigmund or Greg Toland. People talk about how his tropes are, you know, very dramatic lighting, mm-hmm. very heavy shadows. I think what I find most uh, moving about him when I read about him is his constant restless experimentation. Mm. He for example, on Seconds, the John Frankenheimer movie, he was using fisheye lenses late in his career. Uh, there was one movie he did where he lit a whole scene by candlelight. Picnic uh, has a helicopter shot in it. Yeah, they talk about how he was one of the first people to kind of push that forward. I know that he was a, also a massive perfectionist. I mean, when you see him interviewed, he talks about how he's always about serving the director's needs. Mm-hmm. But also the way he talks about it, you could, you, he clearly demanded a very close collaboration with the director. Like he was with the director determining what all the shots would be well in advance and determining what the atmosphere and, and he felt it was his responsibility to carry that atmosphere through the movie. That makes me wonder if the reason that he doesn't have so many classics under his belt is that he gravitated toward more working with journeyman directors instead of like pure auteurs because with a journeyman maybe he felt that he had more of that collaborative process Mm -hmm. where he could bring more of his ideas to the table instead of being told exactly what to do because people like Michael Curtiz and John Frankenheimer and Martin Ritt are all good filmmakers but they do have that kind of journeyman quality, right? Where they'll just make anything. Even looking at the back end of his career, he was still working with people like Sidney Lumet and Sidney Pollack. Mm-hmm. People that are good filmmakers, but they do have that kind of, I don't know, journeyman. <laughs> yeah, the, the style doesn't need to be very consistent. The, mm. the preoccupations don't need to be consistent from film to film. Yeah. They're at the service of whatever their material is. Or maybe it's just that James Wong Howe was at the wrong place to get involved with all these auteurs. Like by the time that they were starting to make films, he was pa- passe because he represented an older Hollywood than they were working in. He did make a film with Howard Hawks and a film with Samuel Fuller. He did. Yeah. That's true. Uh, I mean, but those would be considered kind of like Hollywood auteurs, right? Working within the system. Yeah. So yeah, he worked with all these great people. But like I was saying that I I was speaking to a group of friends. I'm like, oh, James Wong Howe. And they went, yeah, like that joke in Inherent Vice where a character (laughs) says, oh, the lighting was done by James Wong Howe. But even them, they couldn't name a film right off the top of their head other than Sweet Smell of Success that James Wong Howe is associated with. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to do two cinematographers for this episode because we didn't think we'd have enough if we just used one other than saying, wow, those pictures sure look good. (laughs) So we picked another famous one, which is Christopher Doyle. Mm -hmm. So Christopher Doyle does have an interesting association with James Wong Howe in the sense that while James Wong Howe was Chinese, even though that he grew up most of his life in America... He did work on Hollywood pictures, and Christopher Doyle is Australian, and he's principally known for working in Hong Kong. And when you see him interviewed, he has this very strange accent now that's midway between Cantonese and Australian. So Christopher Doyle is the rock star cinematographer. Mm -hmm. When people talk about the cinematographer as this kind of over-the-top presence that everybody knows, usually the first person they'll go to is Doyle. Hard-drinking, foul-mouthed guy who's working with Wong Kar Wai and the two of them on these 
really weird production schedules, either working two years in the desert on Ashes of Time or uh, doing going guerrilla style under the street in the streets of Hong Kong to shoot Chungking Express. I will never forget reading an interview with Takashi Miike, who directed a film that starred Christopher Doyle as the villain called Andromeda, which was a vehicle for some Japanese pop stars. And he said that Doyle used alcohol as a fuel, like that he couldn't get his day started unless he was drunk. Okay, that's called alcoholism. (laughs) Yes, it is. And it's not not good. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) But that is one of those pieces that defines Doyle for people that know him as who he is, right? Not even just his cinematography, but the idea that he's like, anything goes! He's a wild man. Like, I saw him introduce Comrade's Almost a Love Story, which he shot at the Lightbox, and he was all over the place. The moderator had a lot of difficulty getting him off stage, which is amazing when you consider all of the difficult productions that he's worked on. Because he's known as the Wong Kar Wai guy, and there's no more difficult filmmakers than Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, I hope Christopher Doyle's okay. (laughs) Yeah. I think when we think of Christopher Doyle, we think of him in two modes. We think of either the very warm, velvety, sumptuous... Uh, very rad look of in the mood for love or hero mm-hmm. or we think of the gorilla style poppy almost like you know what they once would have called mtv style mm-hmm. cinematography of chunking express but he can also do uh something very cold and slick and very kind of blue tinted like infernal affairs or the remake of psycho <laughs> or the remake of psycho or he could do something like days of being wild which is very earthy looking and and very languid and I know Days of Being Wild was sort of inspired, the visual style was inspired by the paintings of Edward Hopper. Mm. So he's a man of many talents. And he's a man that surprisingly got into the cinematography game fairly late in his life. He was 31 years old before he actually started showing an interest in it. And that was kind of out of photography, which he was doing at the time. And he was a man who was known for traveling the world. And when he ended up in Taiwan, his photography actually got him a job shooting Edward Yang's That Day on the Beach in 1983. And if you're going to start uh, working in Chinese with a director, you might as well start with an art house darling like Edward Yang. This morning, I revisited Chunking Express, mm-hmm. which I think is is the quintessential uh Christopher Doyle, Wong Kar Wai collaboration holds up, I'm pleased to say. Much of Chungking Express is set in this area of Hong Kong called the Chungking Mansions. Very densely packed community, very low income community, a, a lot of a high immigrant population, a lot of very seedy stores. Uh, the movie implies uh, a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. In this film, the way he shoots it, I mean, there, there's no other movie I can think of that gives you a greater sense of what Hong Kong is like and a, a greater visceral feeling of Hong Kong. But you never get a great sense of the space. Mm-hmm. Like Hong Kong is this city that's almost like collapsing in on itself. And Doyle uses his uh, step framing, you know, the fa- the famous step framing. and sl- Which every and sl- filmmaker yeah. rips off on a short film when they see Chunking Express. Yeah. And all these stores, all these colors, all these people are like collapsing into themselves. And even when we see the protagonists in their own apartments, the apartments look like they're collapsing in on themselves because there's just so much stuff in there. Mm-hmm. The, the characters hardly have any room to move. And this brings up a good point of where Christopher Doyle and Wong Kar Wai start, where the visual look is so distinctly Christopher Doyle, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that off-the-cuff kind of, we grabbed this shot, we did this shot, we didn't have permits to do it, even though that we're shooting with these giant pop stars. And, and he's always like... Even in those circumstances, finding the beauty in the everyday. He's finding the beauty of the neon lights and, and, and CDs and a jukebox and everything. And I think that Christopher Doyle was the perfect cinematographer to work with Wong Kar Wai because Wong Kar Wai's energies are also that slapdash, pull it together at the last minute. The fact that Chunking Express was a film that was made between the breaks in filming the epic ashes of time, mm-hmm. which Christopher Doyle was shooting, adds more to that energy that Chunking Express has that is illustrated not just by 
Doyle's shooting style, but also by the editing scheme and the way that the storytelling moves that Wong Kar Wai brings to it as well. Because, like, we talked about it before, but I think it's so important when a cinematographer and a director are on the same page. Because when you have an amazing cinematographer that comes to do a director that has a very distinct style and they're kind of, like, stylistically different, you get usually a good-looking picture that is not that compelling. I saw Kelly Reichardt talk at Ryerson University last week, and she was talking about how she had some difficulty with cinematographers in the past. She described them as sort of like boys and their cameras. Mm. But she was also talking about shooting Wendy and Lucy, how the cinematographer on that was a full foot taller than her and therefore saw the world differently than her. <laughs> and that and that and like just even that was a, a tricky like a, a tricky thing to reconcile. On the two feature films that I've shot, the cinematographer has been my best friend on the shoot. He's the one that I go to, that I share ideas with, and he's also the one that I usually check with and go, all right, did we get that? And he checks it, he gives second confirmation. Yes, we got it. For me, the cinematographer has been the person that I have to trust because at the end of the day, that person is the one that's putting the images on screen sometimes he's using the camera he's lighting it Mm -hmm. so it's so important and it's kind of crazy to think that christopher doyle is that person especially when he works on hollywood films considering the personality that he has but you know what he obviously makes it work Mm -hmm. because he worked on pictures like lady in the water which was m night Shyamalan's big i don't know if i want to say comeback film his folly yeah because he had made the village And that had been a a commercial success, but you could feel audiences and critics kind of pushing against him a little bit. He was starting to be known as the twist guy. Yes. And he wanted to make something that was fresh and new and that you can tell the way that he's talked about the film in interviews before it came out. Wanted to be like a modern day classic, if you will. I, I believe it was even marketed as a f- bedtime story by M. Night Shyamalan. And you can just imagine him tucking you in at night and reading you this this magical story about the, the narfs and the scrunts. <laughs> so had you seen this movie before? No, I, I hadn't. When it came out, like the knives were out for M. Night Shyamalan. The backlash was in full swing. I mean, he around this time, he was definitely... Uh, ready for his Bogdanovich like downfall mm. where where everyone was kind of everyone was kind of tired of um he had sort of developed the reputation as like an, an egomaniac and I think people were ready to see him fail. And Lady in the Water gives so much ammunition to those people mm. because it's a film about creativity that positions M Knight himself who acts in the film as the greatest person in the world <laughs> who will save basically planet Earth. Yeah, and the villain of the piece is a film critic named Mr. Farber. Now, do you think that like M. Knight had like a weird grudge against Manny Farber? That seems so weird. Well, it's it's a little surprising that he made film critics the enemy since I think they, they were pretty kind to him up to this point. I think it was more that audiences were kind of yeah. putting him in a box. Yeah, but... If you read some of the contemporary reviews, certain film critics definitely took this swipe personally. And it's the most dead-on swipe since Emmerich's Ebert and Roper (laughs) in the Godzilla remake. In the sense that the critic played by Bob Balaban is grumpy and he's mean and he dies a brutal death yeah yeah. (laughs) where he comments on the fact that because he's a critic and he knows how things work he cannot die but whoa what a twist he does i think that scene was felt a little out of place yes it it did like it had a it had a uh a level of irony and a knowing quality that was in quite a different tone than the very earnest rest of the film. So for people that don't remember, the film is about Paul Giamatti playing a... Um... Cleveland Heap. <laughs> Cleveland Heap? Isn't that what his name is? There once was a I man forget. named Cleveland Heap. <laughs> Who plays the um, landlord of a rundown apartment complex filled with all kinds of lovable weirdos mm-hmm. who comes under the spell of... Of a what were they called like a nymph of some a, kind a, a scrunt i think right played isn't by, she a scrunt played by bryce dallas howard who tells him that there is a magical man who will define the future and i need to inspire him 
to be able to do that thing, to write that book mm-hmm. that will then influence a young boy who will become the president, who will put in action, I don't know, social uh, change and stuff like that. I have to say I found this movie uh, kind of endearing. I found it very lovable yeah. in the kind of <laughs> thick-headed straightforwardness of wanting and just earnestness. Yeah. Uh, there's an amazing book about the making of the movie called The Man Who Heard Voices or How M. Night Shyamalan Risked His Career on a Fairy Tale, <laughs> written by Michael uh, Bamberger. And the thing about the book is that the author says straight up that he is not a film critic and that film is a minor uh, love of his because he's more of a sports critic. So what he brings to the proceedings is this cleared eye journey of how the film came out and all the difficulties M. Night had. And when you start hearing about them, like the, the fact that M. Night doesn't write his scripts in the format that other people do to the point that they're very confusing. And that when he sent his script out to studios, everybody turned him down. So he had to find funding himself to make the picture. Wow. And then he was vindicated. (laughs) That, that kind of endears me a little bit to it, that he genuinely believed in what he was making this like heavy handed tale about how creativity and working together with this insane convoluted mythology can bring us all together and like the critic is representative of all the doubts you have when you're when Mm. you're creating something and to be able to create something you have to cast those doubts aside you know but before we kind of beautiful in a way (laughs) before we talk more about this movie what does christopher doyle add to the picture well i think Shyamalan was probably hired him because of in the mood for love Mm -hmm. because uh you know the mo- this movie isn't quite as visually ostentatious as that one is however it does have heavy use of red and it has a certain softness and a certain dreamy tone you could even say that he may have gotten him as well for the way that Doyle shoots apartment complexes mm. like in the mood for love or like chunking express the way that Doyle can capture the everyday with that slight hint of weirdness, even though that M. Night writes a character with one muscly arm and one normal arm. What the movie doesn't have that Chunking Express has is claustrophobia. Mm-hmm. It's much more like In the Mood for Love, where many shots, will, it will be a widescreen image with something in the center of the image and a lot of dead space surrounding it. So many of the conversations in this movie are framed as shot, reverse shot. You know, Paul Giamatti is talking to somebody Mm -hmm. and then it cuts to, you know, Bob Balaban talking to him and then it cuts back and you rarely see the people in the same frame together. And I guess this is meant to, like, give a sense of their isolation from each other. And when they all come together to create this story, they they become a family. And I don't think that... what will saying means that it's shot conventionally because there's weird ass angles all over the place to tell these stories. Yeah. But I'm just kind of, I was surprised watching it, how barren the frame often Mm -hmm. was and how alienated all the characters seen from each other. But that's also something that I always associate with M night that I think Christopher Doyle just underlines in this movie is that while as M night was discussed as the heir to Spielberg, when he was coming out, Mm -hmm. His style is not like him at all. He has more of a slow, plodding way to tell a story. A kind of importance to what he's doing. And and it's very stilted at times. Mm. Which I think that working with Christopher Doyle may have been his attempt. And it does work in some respects to bring a more life to the frame Mm. that his films don't always have because they do feel calculated in the way they go about things. But he was also clearly going for this kind of dreamlike tone mm-hmm. uh which i which i guess he thought doyle would be able to provide uh, i don't know if they're entirely successful and like we said it's a film that while i did enjoy watching it it doesn't dramatically work in the way that he wants and that's not just doyle because i think doyle captures the images that were asked of him it's more on the head of uh, people like paul giamatti who was given the most hilarious stutter in cinema He's, history he gives a very giamatti-ish performance <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> in that small window where he had that star quality of sideways yeah. and i don't know shoot him up yeah th- this this was his big move like after years in the trenches as a character actor he finally 
finally got got to star in a summer blockbuster <laughs> as your next favorite character, Cleveland Heap. And then that the film tanked. Yeah. But, you know, M. Night and Christopher Doyle went on. Christopher Doyle, unfortunately, these days, isn't a cinematographer on too many things, but he does have a film that he directed that's about to come up. He's also one of the many cinematographers on Ai Weiwei's documentary Human Flow. Mm. But one of the reasons why Doyle isn't working very much is because he doesn't want to work in mainland China. He was quoted in an article in The Hollywood Reporter this year. Uh, which was called why a title on lines of like why Hong Kong filmmakers are becoming Chinese propagandists. Christopher Doyle said it's either sell out or wait out. I am old enough to know it's worth the wait. If only young people don't slack, don't give in to market forces. If we continue in umbrella movement spirit, the naivete is our strength and the questions we ask are our medium. So there the Chinese film industry, the mainland film industry is obviously such big money these days, but there are younger independent filmmakers who are making movies only for the Hong Kong market. Um, and Doyle seems to be aligning himself with them, and he he doesn't want to align himself with the PRC in Beijing, which and is a hard road to travel. Especially when all those rebellious filmmakers that he worked with, like uh, Choi Hark, who made a career of just kind of shitting on China for mm-hmm. the first decade leading up to the handover, mm-hmm. is now working with mainland China doing these giant blockbusters. Or, you know, Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together, which is an oblique statement about the handover and about the feeling of kind of cultural displacement that Hong Kong was feeling. Uh, you know, now Wong Kar Wai, yeah, I mean, it, not that the Grandmaster is an, is an unworthy film or anything. Yeah, but, but it is a big budget yeah, it's, picture. It's part of the system. So I hope that we illuminated our discussion of cinematographers with you. It was a tough road for me and Will to travel, but we made it, Will. We did it. Without saying, the pictures just look so good. <laughs> so uh, we actually got a letter uh, recently about our first episode, Jerry Lewis, the late, great Jerry Lewis. And it's it's a rather long letter, so I'm going to condense it to a few points, but it comes from Elise Moore, who says of Jerry Lewis... First, I was pleased to see Cracking Up get some love. It is definitely superior to Hardly Working, and I've wondered if that's because it reunited Jerry with screenwriting partner Bill Richmond. I recently heard on another podcast that Richmond first worked with Jerry on The Bellboy, Uncredited, which supports the theory that their collaboration is behind Jerry's better, or sometimes just stranger, work. Although I do have a soft spot for which way to the front. By the way, I do too. (laughs) She also mentions, I firmly prefer Jerry's self-directed films to over his Tashlin films, although there's so much overlap in concepts that they almost seem to take place in the same universe. Either Jerry was contributing ideas to his Tashlin films, or he felt free to rip off Tashlins in his own films. My problem with the Tashlin films, comparatively, is, ironically, they're way too normal compared to what Lewis did in his own films, although they do some very interesting things with his persona. Hmm. Do you agree with that? I actually do. I mean, I think uh, Frank Tashlin is a more disciplined filmmaker and I, I like his films with Jerry Lewis, but I think the difference between them is that Frank Tashlin is a social satirist. Mm-hmm. He's interested in, you know, the media and consumer culture, whereas Jerry Lewis is interested in the self. Mm. I always associate Tashlin's films with being not quite as funny as Jerry Lewis's films, but like you said, more visually controlled. Yeah. Because he was an animator and that he brings that aesthetic to the films that he put Jerry in, which is two weird objects clashing together mm-hmm. because he's used to doing this very storyboarded out stuff. And then you have this wild card that's Jerry doing whatever he does on screen. I think the the point, too, about Bill Richmond is interesting. I, I heard Sean Levy, not the filmmaker, but the writer Sean <laughs> Levy, uh, after Bill Richmond died, Levy commented that you could read Jerry Lewis's career as a series of collaborations, starting with uh, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, then Jerry Lewis and Frank Tasson, and then Jerry Lewis and Bill Richmond. And after they stopped working together, it was downhill very quickly. Uh, we've talked about doing a, a Frank Tashlin episode in the future, and it's still on our list, because I happen. think that'll be fun. So anyway, thank you to Elise Moore. The next letter is from Nate Arch, and he goes, Gents, long-time, first-time Patreon supporter here. First off, thank you for the wonderful podcast. May your wildest Podmas link dreams come true. Oh, uh, we can only wish, eh? I know, the AV Club isn't what it was. You have the... <laughs> 
<laughs> the person is writing a podcast <laughs> entry right now and they hear that they're like wait a minute uh, uh that kinja is terrible i i mean hey i love the the av club i visit in, every in, day in its glory. i used to visit every day <laughs> back in like 2009 you it's know? turning into your um the ain't it cool news yeah, of this generation yeah, yeah. You have the best movie podcast on the interwebs, and wow. I hope it is only a short matter of time when you gain wider, blank, checkish size acclaim, as it richly deserves. Yeah. That'd be nice yeah. to have that blank, checkish kind of buy a mansion. And uh, does he have a roller coaster in that? I think it's, I'm thinking of Richie Rich. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Blank check the movie. <laughs> yeah, the classic. <laughs> I thought I thought they were referring to some podcast that I didn't know about. Secondly, I'd love to hear an episode on Paul Verhoeven, especially in regards to his worth as a technician. Most overviews of his work focus on the over-the-top sex and violence in his pictures. I would love to hear both your takes on his contributions to the craft and his placement among blockbuster era directors. I think he gets shortchanged because nobody else is very good at doing what he does and his camera work editorial choices blocking and set pieces are almost always solely in service to the story and do not draw attention to themselves as being verhoven in style even though they are consistently top-notch uh we've talked about doing a verhoven episode it, it's been on my i keep pushing we, we it back will, we will i uh just a quick thought on him though i do think that verhoven does have a particular style to his filmmaking but like you said he is such a great craftsman that I think that's the only way that films like Robocop and Starship Troopers can work so well. Because while being a satirist, he does what he does so perfectly mm -hmm. that people don't need to notice the satire to enjoy what's going on in the pictures. Like, he enjoys yeah. making action films. Yeah, it's, an, it's interesting that so much of the critical commentary about him like is focused on the idea of him as this like trojan horse mm -hmm. lastly i eagerly look forward to the eventual mitchell and o or joe don baker episode walk tall oh, wow. nate p.s as a minnesotan i am contractually obligated to request both purple rain and cohen brothers episodes as well as a special director's cut episode on the directorial work of robert zimmerman i am sorry these are my duties is Robert Zimmerman Bob Dylan? Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Patreon episode, maybe. Maybe, yeah. 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 Uh, it, we've been asked a bunch to do, like, episodes on musicians uh, who also did film work, but I don't know what I would say about it. I think it. Bob Dylan could offer, could offer something. I, I mean, not, you know, not just the films he directed, but there's an interesting canon of stuff like you know, obviously uh, the the don't look back, but also something like masked and anonymous. You know? <laughs> masked and anonymous. Like, like he has a strange, a strange. Oh. Ronaldo and Clara is a movie that he directed, which I haven't seen because it's four hours long. Holy shit! Pro and and I don't think it has a great reputation. You know, I think Don't Look Back would probably make a either normal episode or a good Patreon episode as well. But what about Joe Don Baker? Would uh, we talk about him? I would love to talk about Joe Don Baker in the context of a Patreon episode. Yeah, I mean, I also want to do a Phil Carlson episode. And that Oh, yeah. That would take up some of the some of the key Baker titles. Yeah, the Walking Talls, Framed. Exactly. I haven't seen Framed, but I hear it's uh, it's, it's a, a lot, lot of fun. fun. <laughs> and if people, uh, we may not do that for a while, want to get into Phil Carlson, I would also highly recommend the Phoenix City Story. It's a, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the last letter is from John Paul McKenna, and he goes, Hey guys, I've been listening for a while now, and I love the show. I have two small children, so my days of indulging in extended movie watching are gone for the foreseeable future. Boy, that was a big mistake you made, huh? <laughs> but your praises of John Woo's Prime has inspired me to catch back on his peak HK stuff. Would, could you recommend preferred disc versions? I've had terrible luck with bad versions in the past. All the best from Ireland. Uh, let me check dvdbeaver.com. <laughs> uh, you know, on the top of my head, John Woo is someone who's represented all over the map when it comes to his releases. Uh, just like any Hong Kong film, because me and Will have had this experience of getting stuff at like the Chinatown Mall, like bootlegs that just mm -hmm. look like shit. And we're just overjoyed from the fact that it has burnt in English subtitles <laughs> and is kind of in widescreen most of the time. Yeah. This is like 15 years ago. Yeah. Now most of the things you can find in like pristine Blu-ray version. I think the same thing goes for John Woo. Check out Dragon Dynasty. You're in Ireland. So you, that may be PAL or region two stuff. If you can get an all region Blu-ray player, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the Dragon Dynasty, or as it's known in Europe, Hong Kong Legends did box sets of John Woo stuff that look really good and you can pick up I got Once a Thief the two disc edition of Bull in the Head and I think The Killer for like six bucks on Amazon so just grab it there I've got a Fortune Star Blu-ray of Bullet mm -hmm. uh, which looks very good and yeah like the Hong Kong releases are really good but they're also very expensive they're yeah. usually about $40 but mm -hmm. that's what you have to get into and you know you're buying classics 
And he also asks if we do a Peck and Paw episode. Yes, yeah, we will. Yeah. Um, somewhere down the line. Yeah. God, there are so many things to do, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. We have a list there in a Google Doc that me and Will will look at every now and, and then. We'll, and we'll say what are we feeling like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And speaking of Patreon episodes, this week we did the classic exploitation scare film reefer madness and kind of turned it into a discussion about uh, marijuana and film a little bit mm. so for five dollars a month check it out on patreon and you get four new episodes of the important cinema club a week help us pay for a house <laughs> that we're gonna get in together and we will do podcasting 24 7 that's right <laughs> so next week uh we're gonna get a little bit serious again and we're gonna be doing lewis Bunuel. <laughs> Is it Lewis or no, Louis? No, it's Louis Bunuel. Uh, it's a filmmaker that I'm actually not that familiar with as far as his entire canon goes. I've seen most of the like high points. Uh, Chien Delu. Uh, Lage d'Or. Yeah, and The Exterminating Angel and other films of that ilk. But we'll be watching The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois. And I think we decided on Exterminating Angel, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I might also watch uh, Lash Door again, too. Yeah, I think I'm probably... It's like have... an hour long. Yeah, <laughs> it's easy. Yeah. Uh, Cinematheque Francaise used to show it all the time. You gotta watch it the way they showed it, silently, Ugh. with no music. So, until then, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Last weekend, me and Will got to share something together, and that's we went to the Horrorama convention. In... Horrorama, yeah. Just, I, just I, so people don't 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 get the wrong idea. I can't say that word, and for some reason, I chose a movie title with that word in it. Horrorama, which is put on by Chris Alexander and Lewis from Suspect Video. Mm. Uh, these guys are known in the Toronto scene. Chris Alexander having edited Fangoria for a bunch of years, and Lewis having managed the sadly departed Suspect Video for a long time. Mm. And this was a chance for us to meet in a community center slash school <laughs> with a bunch of tables and to talk to uh, whatever kind of genre minor celebrity that would show up but that's good for me and will because we love a lot of these celebrities and these q a's are genuinely intimate well the q a's that we saw were uh mink stole from the john waters films uh who's an old pro with this sort of thing you know all the all the fa- all the famous stories uh somebody in the audience asked if divine really did eat dog shit what are you doing uh, at this Q&A? Like, 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 why? Why would you? It, you've had 50 years to find, <laughs> to find it, uh, the answer to that question. But what me and Will really love is going to Q&A with Frank Hellenlauter, where this packed room, uh, just watch him sit down and talk about the Blu-rays he had just bought in for a little while. Frank Hellenlauter, the director of Basket Case and Frankenhooker, Bad Biology. Who is also known as a film historian having um, been one of the leading figures in the Something Weird DVD resurgence that happened in the late 90s. Something Weird Video is a company that is uh, equal in importance to Criterion to me. And the panel that we saw was actually him and Lisa Petrucci, who is running Something Weird right now, Mm -hmm. just talking about how the uh, company got started, where it's going, and just made me want to have a podcast with Frank Hellenlauter where we could just talk about movies. Well, he was talking about how he and Mike Rainey, the guy who started that company, would like go to uh, film labs that were closing and they would just they they would say hey here's five thousand bucks can we just take whatever we want uh and and then they would save save the negatives of hundreds of movies that would be gone if they hadn't grabbed those including you know notable exploitation films like the curious dr hump and uh house on bear mountain uh these titles may mean nothing to you but they mean a lot to me and uh, i think the best piece of information i gleaned from helen lauder during the q a is when he just casually admitted that he's helping write a book on roberta finley oh favorite of the podcast Where, and then will sloan jumped in and said wait what kind of book <laughs> well i wanted to know if it was a biography or if it was a uh, collection of interviews or something it's going to be everything apparently and supposedly she's involved which yeah. just goes to show that uh her tough exterior is melting as time goes on he he sat down and he was sh- and he was showing the collected people the dvds he bu- he bought one of them was a woman's torment mm-hmm. and uh, another one was a movie called paganini horror yes which have you ever seen paganini horror i have directed by uh, luigi cozy the director oh. of star crash not very good so don't check it out but uh helen lauder had a crazy german hard box of it and he went hey you know why not yeah i kind of want to see paganini horror it's a great it's a great title oh it has an amazing poster and yeah. dude it, it's not worth it. I even watched it with uh, my pal who loves Bruno Matai film, and it even 
broke him. Like he's like, this is awful. You can buy it on vinyl for fifty two dollars. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just can't believe you. <laughs> it's it's a horror movie about Paganini made by the Italians. In yeah, the 80s. There's no way that it can yeah, fail. Yeah. But going at the convention and looking at the Blu-rays also made me realize that we're in a weird phase when it comes to collecting movies. They're starting to get really expensive if you want to buy Blu-rays. And what's funny about that is that it's just the cyclical nature of film collecting where VHS came out, they were super expensive, they got super cheap, and then Laserdiscs came out, and they were only for the collector's market. And they were super expensive. They were like $90, $120. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first started buying DVDs, I could not fathom buying these films that are so expensive. And while they did come in big box sets and they did look like they cost a lot, that's still so much. Mm-hmm. Then the mass market arrived for DVDs. Uh, two for 20 pretty much everywhere all the new Hollywood releases and then that went away because those video stores don't exist anymore but what's happening now and we've kind of touched upon it as it's gone along is that we are in the golden age of physical media companies have realized that if they release packed collector's editions to a very specific market and they charge prices that are 30 to 52 dollars Festron video at some points mm. That they will buy it because these people want these movies. But but also like companies cultivate a sense of brand loyalty mm-hmm. where you might buy something from a vinegar syndrome because you trust their their imprint, even though you probably shouldn't. <laughs> no, I don't think you should trust any of these labels. Because... Yeah, yeah, but 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 people but people do. It's like like they've picked up a lot of lessons from Criterion. Mm-hmm. You know the way that Criterion will also have like four releases a month and they're individually yeah. numbered, which gives them all this sense of like exclusivity well i think the people buying the blu-rays are probably the same reflection as me is that i'll pick up a film and go wow they have two transfers on this because one of them is cinematographer approved and the other one's a new 2k from the negative yeah that must mean that they care and then i watch whatever movie it is i'm like oh man it sucks <laughs> uh, but i also sometimes feel like i'm obliged to support these things yes. because because so so something weird video is putting out a new blu-ray of bat pussy oh we're gonna love that well, I first of all, I've already seen Bat Pussy, yes. and and I already love it. But <laughs> but, but Bat Pussy is uh, sort of porn film that I think was made in the deep south in the early 70s. They don't know who made it. They don't know who made it. They just found a 60 millimeter print and it's one of the shoddiest things ever made. It's a Batman parody, but it, it seems like it was made by aliens. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's one of the most rigorously unerotic films of any genre, let alone pornography. And uh, Something Weird Video is now putting out a new Blu-ray, you know, uh, with a 2K restoration from the only existing 16 millimeter print. And it's got a commentary and everything. Uh, and and not only do I want that, but I feel like it's I have to buy it because they made this for me. <laughs> Something weird is also going into releasing previously unreleased Ed Wood films oh, because yeah. Frank Helen Lauder said that take it out in trade. Uh, the picture that uh, screened at uh, Fantastic Fest a little while ago that was lost forever is finally going to be released, remastered by their company. I can't wait. And. I think what was the most funny thing is that he went, you know, somebody wanted uh, to sell, take it out in trade to us for $5,000. And I was like, well, I don't know if I could afford that. And then, But then the American Genre Film Archive said, hey, we'll pay for that. If you had heard that take it out in trade was available for $5,000. I probably would have bought it, know, actually. That's what yeah. I- <laughs> well, I, I, I remember uh, I, I, I interviewed Frank Hanlon Lauder for an article years ago, and I asked him about take it out in trade. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, I don't know. Ru- Rudolph Gray knows a guy who has it. But the, but but these guys, they, they like having it for themselves. Mm. And I, I thought that was just so heartbreaking. I, in fact, something weird, you know, 20 years ago, put out a compilation of outtakes from take it out in trade. Yeah. Which, of course, I watched. Yes. <laughs> you know, because I need every bit of crumb. <laughs> and this whole conversation was really kind of cemented for me when I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw a post for a two-disc Blu-ray special release from MVS Rewind Video of the kind of middling Jean-Claude Van Damme Shane Kasugi film Black Eagle, (laughs) which scrolling through the special features, I was like, this is insane. They have like seven making of about all the things that, well, I guess I have to buy this too. (laughs) And... I'm really curious to know what happens when the people who grew up with VHS are just dead. Because there'll be no market for that anymore, right? So it's time to squeeze the teat until there's nothing left, I say. Well, there's no way to transition from that into a Louis C.K. conversation, (laughs) so we might as well end it now. We're going to lose five minutes. No, I think that we should talk about Louis C.K. 
only because that's what everybody is talking about right now. Mm-hmm. And um, you said something really interesting when we were discussing the fact that can Louis C.K. come back from what is now publicly known that he did, which is masturbating in front of women without their consent? I don't think he can. Uh, I mean, I've been wrong before. But mm-hmm. first of all, he's not like Mel Gibson where he's playing characters. Like he was playing himself. But also because he was dealing in taboo subject matter uh, and, and, and very, very dark subject matter, oftentimes about issues of consent and issues of sexual impropriety. And, you know, he talked a lot about like shameful feelings we all have uh, to, to be able to sort of like take you by the hand into that area and guide you into that area. The audience needs to have trust in him. Mm -hmm. You you know, you know what I mean? And now they, they need to trust that, I will admit to you, the comedian, that I too share these thoughts, as long as we're certain that neither of us are going to act on those thoughts. Yes. You know? Because we're all laughing about it, but we all know that it's wrong, and that's why we're laughing about it. And when that comes out, especially in the way that it did come out, which is that, like, it was there, people were talking about it, he wouldn't comment on it, he says, oh, it's just rumors, and then it unequivocally is just like, yeah, he did it then there's nothing, like, there's nowhere else for him to go. Yeah, the trust is gone. Yeah. And how can he do a comeback special about it? Because he can't just do, Well, you know... I, I, like, you were talking about Mel Gibson before, and the career path that Mel Gibson took is that when he did finally start making movies again, there were, like, a weird apology tour mm-hmm. about what he did. Like, Bloodfather is all about how he's terrible and he's trying to get better. Mm-hmm. Mel Gibson, it feels like everyone has gone, oh, we've forgiven you now. So he can parody that persona in something like Daddy's yeah. Home too. And also you can, you know, to, to use a tired phrase, separate the artist from the art with him more easily. You think so? Do, I mean, do I? I don't know. But but like you, you, yeah. can, you can draw a distinction between Mel Gibson, the man and Mel Gibson, the guy from Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. Oh, know? yeah, I understand. Well, yeah. Louis C.K. doesn't have that. Yeah. Like his show is called Louis yeah. and it's about him. And, and also like Louis C.K.'s whole brand. I, I mean, I kind of disconnected from him, to be honest, after Gawker started publishing yeah. this stuff because his whole shtick was, oh, I'm I'm the most brutally honest comedian. I'm I'm an artist because I'm so candid and i'm dealing in stuff that no one else will talk about but i think that there comes a point when like he's so self-flagellating but there's an ego to it mm-hmm. right like oh look at me i'm so honest i'm so i'm so smart look at how honest i am mm-hmm. but, yeah in calling myself a piece of shit yeah if he's really so honest then why is he spending five years saying those are just rumors yeah right like he's not he's, being on it's yeah it's that kind of controlled brand of honesty that he was putting yeah. out there yeah but like you said like what would his comeback special be like him coming out and just say, yeah. I'm an asshole, I'm yeah. a piece of shit, you know. Like, no one can laugh at that, yeah. because that's brutal. But people can laugh at your Louis C.K. impersonation. That I, sounds I, like I, Ted Levine my, in The Silence of a Headlands. Yeah, and, and my, my daughter was mad at me. <laughs> fucking, Put the lotion fucking in the hate, basket. Fucking hate my daughter. But you brought up something interesting in that there's a new book about Woody Allen... Uh, that just came out. What is it called again? It's called Start to Finish by Eric Lax. And Eric Lax is kind of Woody Allen's Boswell. Mm. Like he's followed him around for years. Uh, so I read Start to Finish because God help me, I can't stop being interested in Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. It attempts to chronicle the production of a Woody Allen movie, Irrational Man. The classic. The g- greatest film of all time. <laughs> uh, from like the script writing stage to the release and everything about it. And allegations of Woody Allen molesting his daughter are addressed in a 10 page section in the middle, Mm. which is our most is mostly an interview with Moses Pharaoh, who is the estranged Pharaoh child who supports Woody Allen. And most of it is sort of a character assassination on Mia Pharaoh. Aside from that 10 page section, uh, the allegations are not addressed anywhere else in the book, which is insane because it should affect everything that. Yeah you know, goes into making a Woody Allen film. Like you put, mentioned casting. Yeah, yeah. So so in the casting, like the section is all the received wisdom you always hear about Woody Allen. Oh, actors want to work with them and they'll work for scale and uh, agents will often appro- approach uh, him f- uh, to put their clients in his movies. And I'm reading this thinking, okay, but does anyone turn him down? Somebody must turn him down. Or even if they don't, 
address that. That's interesting. Or when he's out trying to scout locations for a movie, do any of the locations turn him down for moral reasons? Mm -hmm. Even if they don't, that needs to be addressed. That's the one, that's the thing that defines Woody Allen for most people now. 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 Allen for most people now.